you guys know uh, how this works, right? Whatever uh, book I'm reading is what you're going to get sermon illustrations from, you know, so you guys can follow along with my reading list. So who knows what book I'm reading? It's been three months I've been reading this box set. Anybody? I've mentioned it once or twice. My Churchill biography. Uh, It's called The Last Lion, and it's very long, and there's a lot of things in it. (laughs) But anyway, so Churchill, he's the one, uh, the portly fellow there on the right. And um, I'm reading this, this, so I'm in the middle of part three. Um, uh, World War II is just getting going. Um, Anyway, so let me tell you how this went. This is what I learned. After World War I, World War I was pretty terrible, right? A lot of people died. It was pretty awful for basically no reason. And uh, the way that they died was horrible. They were gassing each other and sitting in the trenches and trench foot and infection. I mean, it was awful. And so after World War I, everybody in England, uh, not everybody, a lot of people in England were so, were very anti-war, understandably, right? We don't want to do that again, right? You go through the worst thing in history, let's not do that again. And so at like Oxford College, a lot of the students would sign like, I'm not going to show up if they draft me, pledge, stuff like that. And a lot of those people then became part of the government. And the government was filled with people who were very anti-war and, um, you know, didn't want to do World War I again. And so uh, what happened, though, was the Germans, who had lost World War I, they weren't very anti-war. They were very, hey, let's go to war. <laughs> and so Hitler, what Hitler was doing was he was building up the German army, breaking the deal that they had signed after uh, World War I. And he was building up the army and the navy and, uh, you know, the, the German Air Force. And um, all this buildup. Meanwhile, everybody in England was saying, but we don't ever want to go to war again, so we're not going to build new tanks. We're not going to worry about the army. They started firing generals and shrinking the size of the army. So you had Germany was building everything up, and England was doing the exact opposite. And Neville Chamberlain at this time became prime minister. You guys know that name? It's kind of almost a bad word now, Neville Chamberlain. During... Uh, he was sort of the, the king of the appeasers, right? Well, okay, Hitler's not good, but let's just keep giving him stuff, and eventually he'll just get tired and stop, right? Uh, he's not going to want to go to war. He just wants more land and stuff. Let's give him Czechoslovakia. That's kind of the joke, right? Even, you know, Chamberlain giving up Czechoslovakia. During, during this time, um, Winston Churchill was one of the only people that accurately saw what was happening and the times that they were living in. And... Uh, he was the only person calling for a buildup of the army and the navy and all this stuff. And the, the, um, the, what's the British Air Force called? I forget. They have a name for it. RAF. Yeah, yeah. And uh, during all this time, man, they were calling him names. They called him a warmonger and all this stuff. Oh, he fought in the war in South Africa. He fought in World War I. Uh, he just loves war. That's what they would say. And it got so bad for Churchill during this time that volume two of this set that I'm reading is called Alone. Because he really was. He was alone. And, um, and it got so bad that actually all of his responsibilities uh, in the government got taken away from him because Hitler didn't like him. And so Chamberlain and all these guys were like, but if we give Churchill any power, uh, Hitler will be offended. So these guys were <laughs> worried about offending Hitler, so they put Winston Churchill uh, on the bench. And the thing about him is, though, he never wavered. He was one of those guys who was bullheaded and kind of mean... <laughs> and stubborn, and he knew when he was right, though. And here he was right. And so what he started doing was hiring, basically, people, spies, 
in the government and stuff that were feeding him information he wasn't supposed to be having classified stuff. He made speech after speech after speech in parliament begging for them to change their course of action, right? This is gonna happen, this is Hitler, right? This, he's the only one who saw Hitler as a monster. And when the time came and Hitler started invading everybody and went into France and Poland and Belgium and everything, uh, all of a sudden everybody started realizing, oh, maybe we shouldn't have Neville Chamberlain be the prime minister. And that's when Churchill came to power and the, you know, the rest is history. Well, I don't know yet, I haven't got that far, but I think they win, I think they win World War II, right? Uh, okay, so when I look at the church today, I am shocked by how many folks in the church seem to sort of live like Neville Chamberlain. We're absolutely blind to the realities of the kingdom of God around them. What's actually happening around them, they're completely blind to it. And I think the church needs more Churchills and less Chamberlains. More people uh, with urgency, right, uh, who see the world the way it really is. It's a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon, right? We talk a lot about Babylon as a, as a picture or a type of this evil system in the world that's oppressive and uh, sinful. And then the kingdom of God is this, this place where uh, goodness and, and joy and love is how we win, right? And so um, we need people who live into that reality, who live, who live like they actually believe Jesus might come back at some point, you know? Um, when I went to seminary, I went to the seminary in um, Berkeley, and it was awful. And uh, I had this preacher, there was a guest preacher there, um, or guest professor, in a preaching class. And so we, like the way preaching classes work is you get up and you give it like a little 10 minute sermon and then everybody rates you and all this stuff. So I got up and I did the sermon and uh, the, the guest preacher, he go, or professor, he's like, look, he went through the list. Presentation was great. Uh, the organization of the sermon was great. He gave me good marks on basically everything. And then he goes, the only part I didn't like was how you said in the middle there that you think Jesus is actually coming back. <laughs> and I was like, what kind of school is it? Where am I? What is happening? You know, he's a guest professor. He wouldn't have been a regular professor there. Um, <laughs> I thought that was so odd, right? I, I did a sermon on, I don't remember what the sermon was on, probably something in Revelation. I don't know. Um, anyway, we need to live with real kingdom perspective, not like my professor, but like people who actually believe that Jesus is coming back, right? With that urgency that Churchill had while he was screaming these speeches at Parliament. You know, Hitler's coming, guys. Like, let's do something about this. Um, so we're going to read a passage today where Jesus talks about that. Let me just give you the context real quick, because we read through the book. We're reading through the book of Luke. So if you haven't been here, you've missed, or you know, this might be new for some of you. Um, <clears throat> let me give you the context. Chapter twelve. Um, Jesus, what he's doing is he's teaching his twelve disciples and a bigger group of disciples. There was the the women, the seventy, you know, all this big group of people. And what he's doing is he's getting them ready because he knows he's about to be crucified, rise, and take off, right, and descend. And so he's getting them ready to launch the church. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, look, you guys are going to be persecuted. And when that happens, you need to rely on the Holy Spirit to tell you what to say in these synagogues. And then he says, the kingdom will also change how you guys view your stuff and your money. And then he realizes they're going to be very anxious about using their stuff for kingdom purposes. And so he gets into a whole thing about, you know, well, God takes care of the birds and the grass of the field, and he's going to take care of you guys. And so today, what he's going to say is that it's the next part of this train of thought he's been working through, is that for all of this to work, for this kingdom life to happen, you need to be really convinced that the kingdom is here and that Jesus is coming back, right? So let's take a look. Uh, we're going to work our way through to the end of the passage. So we have a long chunk today, so we've got to hurry up because uh, the Niners are on at one something. All right, here we go. Uh, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, 
So literally, I think what this says is something like gird up your loins. You know, you see that note. Was that the King James? I like that. All right, the gird up your loins. What does that mean? Well, um, basically, the idea was, you know, back in the day, they didn't wear uh, uh, black on black on black on black like I always wear. Wait, what is this today? Great. Niners, right? You guys are in for a treat today. Uh, no black sweatshirt. Um, anyway, they had like those long robe kind of things, right? Um, now, let's see. When would I have ever... Oh, graduation, right? If you're a guy... Girls probably know about this. Guys don't, right? If you remember graduation, if you're a guy, when you had that long robe on, if anybody tried to run during that, I remember I was dribbling a basketball at one point on graduation day, and I went between my legs, and it just hit the robe and it bounced away. And I was like, well, that's no good. It's not conducive to running around and doing stuff, right? So what do you do with that? You roll it up and you tie it up, right? Kind of, oh, you know, something like that, right? And so the image here is actually probably from... Um, military imagery too because they would have similar kind of things it was like tie yourself up get yourself ready for battle right so that's the idea the second thing is keep the lights on do you remember the old motel six commercials am i the only one right what is it we'll keep the lights on for you um you know it's funny when i was writing this i remembered the thing but i didn't remember what it was for so i googled it and i was like oh motel six no i don't want them to keep the lights on for me I've been to a Motel 6 on a motorcycle road trip. It did not go well. <laughs> anyway, the image, though, here is obvious, right? What he's telling them is to be ready. Um, and so what he's do this is like his, his thesis statement of his research paper. You know, like you put it at the beginning. Uh, this is what I'm talking about. And he kind of, the second half of that thesis is this part, too, 36. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. All right, so for you guys here and people listening to the podcast later on, I want to stop and do a little side project here real quick before we get into this, right? When, you re when we're reading the Bible, this is going to be real quick. It's very easy to read stuff like this and get caught up because you're like, wait, slavery, really? <laughs> Jesus is going to use an imagery from slavery to talk about the kingdom of God. Um, here's what I'll, I won't get into a whole sermon on slavery. We're going to do this at some point. But the, the biblical trajectory of love and everything basically makes slavery impossible. That's why a lot of people who fought to end the slave trade were Christians. Guys like uh, William Wilberforce and Harriet Tubman, who's my favorite person in history, was a committed believer. Um, Frederick Douglass, right? So I don't want to get caught up on the whole idea that Jesus is using imagery of slavery. Um, if you want to read more about this, go study the book of Philemon, which is a really interesting short little epistle that Paul wrote. Um, uh, he wrote it to a slave owner, uh, and completely upends the Roman social norms on slavery. And so um, what Jesus is doing here is he's just using an institution that was very common in this day, right? Like half of the Roman world were um, in slavery. Or if you read the ESV, we're reading the ESV here, there's usually a translation note that says, um, or it, it'll say servant, and then sometimes there's a translation note, I think that says, I don't have my actual Bible here, but it says bond servant underneath. And the reason was because they use the word servant instead of slave because in our mind when we hear slave, what do we immediately think of? 12 years of slave, uh, the African slave trade, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, right? This is what we think. Um, slavery in the Roman world, as, as brutal as it could be, was actually a little bit different. It wasn't based on racism. It was more of a class kind of thing. Um, uh, it wasn't always permanent either. So that's why they, some translations will use the phrase bond servant. You could save up money as a slave and buy your way out. And a lot of times, though, you would, actually, I want to stay here, and my family's here, and we like these people. You know, I mean, and other times, it was absolutely brutal and horrible, right? So it, it's not exactly the same. So anyway, I just want to say, Jesus is using an image in the, that probably offends us, but was very common in the day, and nobody would have 
been offended. This was just how the world works. Sometimes you went into debt, you couldn't pay your credit cards. And the answer was, I'm going to go be a bond servant for seven years to this guy that I owe money to, right? So Jesus uses this image. And the image that he says is, look, you're a slave, a servant, and the master goes off to uh, a wedding feast. And so in Jewish tradition, weddings were very long, elaborate celebrations that lasted, you know, up to seven days. It was a big deal, right? And so the idea was this. You would want to, if you're the servants in the household, you would want to have somebody on watch always because you don't know when the master is going to return home. And this wasn't like, you know, uh, what's that Bluetooth lock that everybody has now on the door? You know, you've seen this thing? You don't need to unlock your house with your phone, right? Well, they didn't have stuff like this. They didn't even really have keys to houses, right? (laughs) If there was a lock, there's a pretty good chance that somebody's not watching, the master's going to come home, he's going to get locked out of the house, and he's going to be pretty pissed, right? And so the image in Jesus' thesis statement with these first three images you can see is dress yourself for action, leave the lights on, and wait for your master's return. The idea is be ready. Okay, let's keep going. He, he flushes this out now. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watcher and the third and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. All right, so the, the level of watchfulness here is very important. Um, you, what he's saying is you don't have any idea when this master is going to show up from the wedding feast. And it's funny when you read Bible commentaries and read, like when I research these sermons and stuff, it's funny how much ink gets spilled on the part that doesn't matter, right? So like a ton of the stuff that I was reading was arguing over whether Jesus was talking about the Roman way to organize time or the Jewish way to organize time. And I was like, boy, that's a steaming pile of who cares, right? Uh, <laughs> okay, two in the morning, three in the morning, four, whenever the, the idea is clear, right? Whichever way he was using, he was using one of the two. Um, uh, you don't know when he's coming. And so he could come in the afternoon, the evening, the middle of the night. Um, and I hear some people even get up in the morning now like pretty early. Did you guys know there's a five in the morning now? They're doing that. I don't know. It's crazy. Um, by the way, uh, my least favorite verse in the entire Bible is that one where Jesus gets up before dawn and prays. That's not like a commandment. I'm just letting you guys know. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay. So when the master comes, this is interesting. He will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Now, if you're reading through this passage fast, there's some big important parts that jump off the page about be watchful and all this stuff. This sentence is very easy to kind of misunderstand or just skip right over. But do you see what's happening here? This is absolutely amazing. What he says is the master is going to be so excited when he comes home to see that his servants are ready and that they've done their jobs and that they've... um, you know, been good servants while he was gone, that they're, he's going to switch places with them. He's going to put on the apron, and he's going to get down and serve them dinner. That is absolutely a mind-boggling image, right? Think of, like Melissa and I just watched um, uh, Downtown Abbey, you know, Downton Abbey, and it's the whole point of the show, right, is the, the, the rich guys upstairs and the servants downstairs, and every time one of the rich guys goes down into the servants' hall, everybody stands up and gets all formal, you know. Well, imagine like the Earl or Duke or whatever that guy was, you know, coming down and whipping up some eggs for Mrs. Patmore or whatever. I don't remember them all, but you know what I mean. It's absolutely an absurd image, and Jesus does that for a reason. Anybody listening to this would have been absolutely baffled by what Jesus was talking about here. What? The master would serve the slaves, the servants? That doesn't make any sense. But the thing is, he was predicting. This is exactly what happened. Can you think of an example of this in the life of Jesus? The night when he was betrayed, he's getting down, he's washing the disciples' feet, which 
him being the servant was actually a smaller picture of when he does it the biggest time, which was the cross, the great exchange. He switched places with his people, with his servants. He was so filled with joy. He did it, the Bible tells us, because of the joy that was set before him, right? And so the picture here, again, is Jesus serving his people in this this wedding feast. A lot of commentators and theologians think this is sort of a reference here that Jesus is just getting started to teach his people about the what we see in Revelation where um, the end times is pictured as this great wedding feast, right? Wherever, where God's people all come together um, and have amazing food and get together in this big feast. And I'm pretty sure Juan from Gaird is going to be there slinging pollo chilorio, you know, at the wedding feast. Anyway, um, so until that day, though, we need to be ready, right? But ready for what? Jesus keeps going. Uh, but know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, so he switches images a little bit, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So here's the thing. Thieves don't make appointments to rob your house. Okay? Um, the punks who broke into my garage and stole all of my motorcycle stuff didn't make an appointment. The guy who broke into my car when I was trying to get uh, food at Japantown he, in my van... Did not make an appointment. The guy who broke into my car when I was getting sushi the other time or when I was getting Tommy's joiner. Well, you get the idea, right? Who stole my motorcycle stuff off of my bike down by the Metreon. These guys, I'm telling you, they don't make appointments. It's never happened. I, I never was like, oh, I bet I'm going to get robbed today. <laughs> you know, the. by the way, the last time, I remember I put that on Facebook or something. The last time we got busted into our car, Melissa and I tried to count the amount of times we've been robbed in the city and we lost track. You know, we got to nine or ten or something. I feel like we're forgetting one or two, but, you know, anyway, now you get used to it. Um, what Jesus is saying here, though, is if you want to protect yourself from thieves, you've got to be ready at all times, right? But what's the image? Ready for what? He says, for my coming. Now, imagine being one of his disciples. This is one of the most important things that you can do when you're reading the Gospels, is to put yourself in the situation. Try to imagine what it was like to be these people there. So imagine you're one of these disciples, and you're listening to Jesus talk, and he's talking about money and anxiety and all this stuff. And he goes, now you guys need to be ready for when I show up. And you look around, and you're like real confused. You're right, you're right here. What do you mean when I'm coming? You're standing in front of me. This doesn't, are you going somewhere? This doesn't make any sense. But remember the context of this whole teaching. Jesus has already twice told them, I'm going to die and come back. I'm going to die and rise and take off. You know, he's already started to get into this. And so even though he had predicted this, um, I wrote it down. Luke chapter 9, he did it a couple of times already. Um, the disciples had no idea. They were just completely blinded to any sort of thing that was actually happening. Um, and so they still don't seem to get it. Watch. Peter is the poster boy for saying stupid things when he doesn't understand what's going on, right? I always say he has foot-in-mouth syndrome. Um, he's a phenomenal, uh, you know, like he's probably one of my favorite characters in the Bible, like people in scripture, because he's so relatable in how much he needs grace and how humble he is when he realizes that and everything. But here he is, foot and mouth syndrome again. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Basically, you talking to me? <laughs> right? He has no idea what's happening. Um, this is one of those spots where I wish the biblical text could somehow show facial expressions of Jesus, right? Um, this would be a killer time for an emoji or a, like one of those gift things from Stephen's old company. <clears throat> I want to know, was Jesus super gentle with Peter the way that he usually seems to be with Peter? Um, the way an adult is when a kid says something that's just totally confused, you know, the kid is totally confused. Or is Jesus more like when Melissa says a whole thing to me and then I look up from my phone and I go, what? <laughs> 
You guys, you're married, right? You know the look, anybody? <laughs> You've done that to somebody and you know the look on her face when she's like, I just said the whole thing and you weren't listening, you know what I mean? Very justifiably. Um, <laughs> some spouses are pointing, right? Yeah, you guys get it. Uh, I want to know what Jesus' heart, what was going on here? I'm guessing it's more like the second one, but it's actually interesting. He doesn't even answer his question. It's almost like, I, I don't know this for sure, right? This is not in the Bible, but it seems to me like, that's so stupid, I'm not even going to go into this, right? <laughs> and Jesus almost just like, he keeps going. Look at uh, verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and, almost like Peter never answered the question, asked the question, who's the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them uh, their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find uh, so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. So now he's going to talk about a faithful servant and an unfaithful servant. So first, the faithful manager. The idea of a manager is somebody, you know, a lot of these folks would have had one servant specifically who was kind of in charge of everything. So think of Joseph at Potiphar's house in the book of Genesis or Joseph with uh, the Pharaoh, you know, like these guys were uh, technically servants, but they were in charge of everything. Um, or in our modern world, an investment manager, look, you're giving this person a lot of money to invest for you and whatever, like they have a lot of responsibility for you. And so imagine if you had somebody taking care of your money and you found out they were doing a really good job, or imagine if you found out they were doing a really terrible job. You guys know that Seinfeld episode where Jerry gets a new sweater and then he sees his accountant and his accountant's all sniffing and he thinks his accountant's on drugs. And it turns out at the end, they fire the accountant and all this stuff. But it turns out the whole time he was just allergic to Jerry's new sweater, you know? Anyway, there's a whole episode, Simon. Yeah, look it up. It's, it's hilarious. Seinfeld's on Netflix now. Um, <laughs> all right, so the faithful manager, what does he look like? It's somebody who does his job, right? Make sure the other servants are doing their jobs and, and that they're all taken care of. They're all fed and everything. Now, what does the faithful manager get? Um, <clears throat> slaves in the Roman world, like I said, they could actually rise to positions of great prestige and authority. So automatically being a slave didn't mean you were at the bottom of society. There were a lot of slaves who were kind of higher up in the social ladder than free people who were free working, you know, like uh, Mary and Joseph were probably pretty broke, probably low on the social standing. But other slaves were tutors and doctors and stuff like that. Um, that's probably the image that Jesus has in mind, is you can rise up like this. Um, now, the image sort of breaks down, though, when we take it too literally, right? When we start thinking of work. Imagine that you hate your job, but you're really good at it. And your boss comes along and he says, wow, you're really good at doing this crappy job that you hate. So I'm going to give you, as a reward, more work. What? No, I don't want more work. <laughs> I want to go home, right? Uh, that's why I did a really good job so I could get out of here early. But let's try it another way. Imagine, what if uh, we're talking about something you love, right? Let's take an athlete on a team, like, I don't know, the Niners, who are about to whip the Cowboys into submission and today will be a glorious victory for, okay, wait, back to this. Um, imagine you're on the Niners, um, and you're not getting a lot of playing time because the team is so stacked and they're so great, right? Okay, so you've got, all right, no, no, I won't get it. Now, um, so you're somebody on the practice squad, and you've been playing football your whole life, and you love it, and you really want to, uh, you know, advance, and um, finally, you get a chance to get in a game and you absolutely destroy the Cowboys, right? And you run for 300 yards or whatever, and Shanahan, the coach, comes up to you afterwards and says, hey, wow, that was amazing. You are going to get a lot more playing time. Then you're, oh, I'm excited, right? This is great. This is what I've been working for. This is what I want. Um, this is what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. Faithfulness is rewarded. Um, rewarded with what, though? More kingdom, 
The faithfulness is rewarded with more kingdom. And what does that look like? More Jesus in your life. Right? That's, that's the reward, is his presence, his life, his love flowing through you to the world around you. And so Jesus says that these faithful servants are going to be rewarded with more responsibility and all this. But what about the running back who can't run? <laughs> right, what about the unfaithful servant? That's the next part. Uh, I crammed that all into one slide because I don't want to leave it, but I'll read this. It's a long part. But if, this, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. The more. All right, so what the unfaithful manager looks like, the unfaithful servant, is an absolute and utter disdain for the authority of his master. He's gone, party time, right? I can do whatever I want. And it, this, this image is actually brutal, right? He's violent with this beating the other servants. And I mean, you can imagine if you, in the Roman world, the way it worked is you could basically do anything to a slave or a servant, you know, and nobody cared. There was property, right? I mean, you could literally cut them into pieces and it would be fun, like in the middle of the street and people would just step over and it would be okay. Right. And so imagine if you're somebody who lived with that fear that this could happen to me at any moment. You should understand enough to not do that to other people. Right. And that's what he's saying is this guy is so self-centered that he is now beating the other servants uh, when he shouldn't be. And then he's a thief and a drunk. And so what does the unfaithful manager get? It says the master comes home and it's pretty brutal, cuts him into pieces. The, the image is clear, right? The, the, the judgment on this unfaithful servant is going to be absolutely brutal. And it says he'll put him with the unfaithful, right? The separating the faithful from the unfaithful is a major theme in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, right? And the, this, this coming judgment. Now, there's a quick question, a kind of a sidebar here I don't really want to get into, but are there degrees of punishment in eternity? That seems to be what Jesus is talking about here, right? This guy's going to get this because he only knew this and that sort of stuff. Um, in Matthew 10, Jesus says, it'll be more bearable on that day than for Sodom. We talked about that in Luke, actually, too. In Romans 2.5, Paul talks about storing up wrath. It's not really clear. A lot of theologians kind of think, though, yeah, it seems like the wrath of God is going to be worse for some people than for others, but we don't know exactly how that works. He says this guy's going to receive a lighter beating than this guy, whatever it is. But the point is the unfaithful servant is going to face the judgment of the master. Now, remember the whole point of our series in the book of Luke. What we want to do is see Jesus for who he really is and who he reveals himself to be in the Gospel of Luke. And we want to take all of our sort of preconceived notions about Jesus that come from un, a lot of unhelpful places, um, and we want to put them off to the side, and we want to look at the book of Luke and ask Jesus, who are you? Well, Lord, who are you? And this is one of those places where Westerners are very tempted to jump in and change Jesus. What's all this talk about judgment? I heard you were all about you know, love and letting people be who they are and all this stuff, right? Well, look at the next verse. Look what Jesus says. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Now, <clears throat> my, um, just real quick, my um, Bible software that I use costs more than my car at this point now, I think. Uh, I've been <laughs> investing in Bible software since I was in college, which was a long time ago. And 
uh, I've got all these amazing tools. You know, like I think when I type in Luke and I want to study a passage, it brings up like a hundred and something commentaries I can flip through and go through. And, you know, I've got systematic theologies and biblical theologies and sermons and original language resources and journal. Like I got a lot of stuff in there, right? But basically, uh, in helping prep sermons and just in studying the Bible, I don't think you, or, you know, you guys don't need all that stuff, right? Well, I, I've got it for one. But also, here's what you need. Okay, there's these three. If you were to get all three of these study Bibles, you would be able to get 85% of what I say in a sermon from the notes and these three putting them together. And what I like about them is they're kind of a little bit different, but they complement each other really well. So there's the ESV study Bible. That's the version we use here, the ESV, English Standard Version. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. Well, that kind of got weird. It's got all skinny. Went on a diet, the study Bible. Um, <laughs> which is kind of... A biblical theology kind of tells the story of scripture, like the flow of a theme. And then the other one is called the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, Study Bible. I like all three of these, right? So I just wanted to put these up on the screen. We put the links in there, right? Um, but anyway, I want to read you one of these notes from one of these study Bibles. So from the NIV one, what the, the guy says is, shifting his attention from the future, right? You should be ready for all this stuff. Back to the present, Jesus urges his followers to recognize the critical time in which they live. Repentance is called for as the time of judgment approaches. Right? Do you see that? So what Jesus did was first he was talking about the future. Now he's talking about now. And what he's, he's talking about is specifically with people, and we're going to get into this more in the next few weeks, but people rejecting him and rejecting his ministry. He's like, guys, I'm right here. You should know better than this. You should be able to follow me and you should be able to understand um, the kingdom of God. And so that's why he's using in verse 49 this imagery of fire. You guys know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And throughout the Old Testament, the idea of fire is like the presence of God. And the presence of God comes with uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The judgment of God. And so um, it actually in, in Greek, it's a little weird, but in Greek, I've told you this before, you can, word order is less important for sentence structure and more important for like emphasis, and in Greek, what this actually says is something more like fire, it's why I've come. You know, he puts fire at the beginning, like he emphasizes the idea of fire and this judgment. And uh, basically, he's giving them this warning. Um, and then he keeps going. He says, verse 50, I have baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So the word baptism actually just means to like dunk something in water, like to submerge something. We, we, have, we use the word with all this theological meaning. But I think here Jesus is more using the word to just mean like, um, uh, uh, I have come to be completely flooded with sorrow, right? So he's not talking about, he already got baptized once, right? He's not talking about the baptism kind of stuff. He's, what he's saying is, I have come to be completely surrounded in pain and distress and, and sorrow. And then he keeps going. Uh, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, that never happens, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. <laughs> right, so hold on, John, wait. Didn't you just do a whole Christmas sermon on peace? Right, didn't we just do this? And now Jesus, I didn't come to bring peace. Right, so forget that sermon. I hadn't read this part yet, so forget, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the difference is, what we talked about is that when you read about peace in the Bible, you've got to ask, well, what does it mean? What kind of peace? And we talked about the difference between the peace. We, in the Christmas sermon, what we said was peace with God. The war with God is over is our foundation for the peace of God, the feeling of peace. 
right? Now, this is different. This is peace between people and all this stuff, right? Like, in specifically in family situations. And what he's saying is, I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Is if you're part of the kingdom of God, that's not going to make your life super easy. It's going to make your life hard. And it, it might cause conflict with people who are not part of the kingdom of God. He's saying, your choice to follow me is going to be costly. I have a friend who is literally the Apostle Paul. Well, okay, not literally, figuratively. The Apostle Paul right now. He's probably the most amazing person I ever met. His name's Mamet. I don't even know if I should say that if we put that on the podcast. Anyway, he um, uh, grew up in Turkey, and he became a believer, and he told his dad about it, and his dad shot at him. And he jumped out of a two-story window and landed on a car, James Bond style, and got out of Turkey, and he's here. And he goes back to Turkey and plants churches, and then they burn him down. And then he comes back, and every time he would leave, when I was a pastor at the old church, this was a guy in my old church, he would say to me, hey, I'm going back to Turkey, basically, like, I don't know if, I'll, if they're going to get me <laughs> or if I'm coming back, right? This, and it was his family that was doing this. And every time, it'd be like, man, he's been gone like three months. Is he coming back? He had no, you know, he's an amazing little dude. I mean, he's like this tall, too. He's amazing. <laughs> this amazing guy, the little the Apostle Paul. And this is what happened to him. This is the best guy I've ever met. He told his dad, I'm a believer now. And his Islamic dad shot at him with a gun, pulled out a gun, started firing. I forget if he hit him or not. I don't remember. Right? This is what happens, right? This is what Jesus says. I've come to sort of cause this division because the kingdom separates people like this. All right, he keeps going. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the, of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So uh, you guys know that show Silicon Valley? Am I the only one that thinks that show is hilarious? Anyway, I was watching that show a while ago, and there was a character on the show who bought a smart fridge. And that was a really funny episode, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, Dennis knows. Um, and in the episode, everybody's making fun of him. And this one guy goes off on this rant that, like, this is American tech stuff at its finest, which is, like, solving a problem that doesn't exist with tech, right? And there's a big rant about it, you know, like, who needs to scan food before you put it in the fridge? <laughs> you know, and they were like, oh, but you can press the screen on the front and it'll show you what's in the fridge. And he's like, you could just open the fridge, you know? Like, anyway, they get into a whole thing. And it, I was thinking about, man, how reliant on technology a lot of us have become, right? Like, for example, if I asked you, is it going to rain tomorrow, what would you do? I'd pull out your phone, Apple Watch, whatever, and you would look at it and you would say, you know, hey, Siri. Did that just set all your phones off? Okay. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if you say Alexa in my house, you're dead to me. Uh, you know, is it going to rain tomorrow? That's what we would say. Well, here's the thing. In the ancient world, right, they didn't have iPhones yet. I don't know if you heard about that. They were still living in the dark ages. They were super unsophisticated, so they had Android phones. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, Stephen's not even here. I was like, I'm going to rag on Stephen. Stephen's an Android developer. <laughs> if you're listening on the podcast, that was for you, Stephen. Um, anyway, no, what they would do is they would go outside and they would look at the sky and they'd be like, oh, there's clouds over there. That means it's, they knew how stuff worked. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I don't know how the weather works. I just look at the thing, right? Okay, I got to wear my Converse that are waterproof. Um, <laughs> right, this is what they did. And so, oh, wait. I set off my thing. <laughs> I tried to get you guys. I got myself. All right. Um, Let's see, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, uh, they, they would have gone outside and looked up. They knew how to predict the weather, right? And so, uh, meanwhile, the entire Old Testament 
was leading the people of God to the coming of the Messiah. It was like, guys, the Messiah is coming. Here's what he's going to look like. Everybody in the time of Jesus, there was like, there's a lot of stuff that's been written about how obsessed with the coming Messiah first century Jewish people were and all these messiahs that would pop up and say, I'm the Messiah and this and that. And Jesus is pointing out the irony here. You guys are really great at predicting the weather. You can look out there and look at the clouds over there and go, oh, I know it's going to rain. And you can see those signs and do that. But you have all these signs of the coming of the Messiah, and I'm standing right in front of you, and you have no idea that it's me. Right? You don't understand the times which you're living, that a new era has dawned. Um, one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I said this a lot, is the book of Revelation. And uh, Revelation is filled with sets of visions and event like you know the bulls and the, the the you know all this stuff the trumpets all this right and there's basically i'm going to get into this real quick because this is important and then someday when i teach you revelation we're really going to get into this there's basically four different ways to read the book of revelation okay you don't have to remember any of this just listen for now the the uh, preterist i think is how you say it actually i have no idea i've only ever read that word now that i'm thinking of saying it out loud in front of people um what these folks believe is this is the first way. The entire book of Revelation happened in the past, and all this stuff led up to 70 AD when the temple got destroyed. There's a lot of problems with this. I'm not going to get into why with this view. The second is called the, the, the history view, basically. Um, that says history is broken up into a timeline, all of history, and there's like specific chunks. So this part of Revelation talks about the Roman period. This part talks about the Middle Ages. This part talks about the medieval church and the Reformation. And for some reason, it always ends with America. <laughs> right? Okay, I could punch some holes into this one too. The next view is called the futurist view, where these folks believe, um, and this is kind of how I was raised too, um, that the book of Revelation covers a very short period of time at the end of time. So most, in most instances, it's a seven-year period broken up into two, three-and-a-half-year chunks, and the book of Revelation is a map for those seven years. And they get very specific about you know, the locusts or helicopters, and this is that, and this is what happens with Israel, and, you know, um, and this view really popped up in the middle of the 1800s was when this became very popular. Um, the last view is um, called the redemptive, uh, redemptive historical ideal view, right? It doesn't matter what it's called. Um, this is the view that says, I mean, this is kind of what I believe, and if you watch the video the Bible Project did on the book of Revelation, this is probably the view they, this is the view they take. Um, that the, the book of Revelation is not something that happens in the past. It's not an outline of the, the chunks of history. It's not a map of a future seven-year tribulation. This view says that history is cyclical, and it's kind of like a snowball, right? The same patterns keep happening over and over and over again, and that these, these visions in Revelation are describing the whole tribulation or the whole church age and what the church has to go through, and it describes the battle between the kingdom of God in the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of Babylon, that fallen, broken world system of Babylon. And we're going to get into this a little bit later in Luke, so I'm going to just kind of move on with saying this. Um, this is why interpreting the book of Revelation is actually very important, right? Because if you think the book of Revelation and this stuff is something that happens way in the future, what, what do I, I don't care, right? I'm not going to be there. If you think it happens something way in the past, same problem. I wasn't there. I don't care. Uh, if you think it's something that happens in those cycles, um, not cycles, those chunks of history, you're like, well, I only have to worry about this part, right, and not the rest of it. And what Jesus says is that for his people to be effective, we have to really understand the times in which we live, and that we live in the end times. Now, we don't know how long that's going to be. The end times could be a million years. I don't know. But we live in this, this church age, and Jesus is saying, 
my coming now has inaugurated this new age, this new sort of way that God deals with his people and with the church. And so what he's calling his people to do is live with end times perspective. And then we're going to end this last passage here, the last section of our passage. And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? Um, As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid every last penny. Okay, so in the first century world, they had like debt court, where if you owed money, you either had to become somebody's slave or they would throw you into jail until you paid your debt. Now, the whole system doesn't make any sense to me because how can you pay somebody when you're in jail, right? Making license plate. I don't, I don't get exactly how it worked. I think it was just, and then you would die, was the idea. Right? It's brutal. Um, this is the, the imagery that Jesus is using here. And, but what he's not, this is not practical, if you read this out of context, which a lot of people do. This is not practical life advice about how to you know, pay off your credit cards. You know, how to get out of what, what we should do with debt. What he's saying here is that you owe a debt. Now, in the context, what is he talking about? Who do we owe this debt to? Right? Well, we owe the debt to God. Our sin is that debt. And the coming judgment is what's going to happen, right? The debt, the, we're going to be thrown into this, you know, into this debtor's prison without somebody interfering, right? And so this, that's kind of the end of the passage, right? So this passage, here we go. This is the three things. This passage says these three ideas. First, you got to be ready for Jesus to come back. Second, you have to understand the times in which you live. And the third thing is you have to settle up with what you owe, right? You've got to settle that debt. Now, um, let's, uh, let's look at this. Sin has affected all three of these areas, right? This first one, be ready for Jesus to come back. Uh, our sin has made us very selfish people, very centered on us and proud and arrogant, which makes, you, makes us terrible servants, doesn't it? Because we're not thinking about Jesus all the time. We're thinking about ourselves. We're, we're the unfaithful servants. The second idea, understand the times in which you live. Our sin has put us into darkness, right? We're all like Neville Chamberlain who can't see the world. We're blind to the world around us. We're blind to the fact that Hitler's across the way building up the Luftwaffe or whatever, you know? This is what's going on. And we make stupid decision after stupid decision because of it. And the third thing is our sin has put us into God's debt. And that's a debt that we could never hope to pay on our own. We're completely and utterly hopeless. So let's take these backwards now. And let's talk about Jesus, right? So first, settle with what you owe. His debt, this is the gospel story, right? His debt pays what we owe, right? Our sin has put us in this position where you could have an infinite number of lifetimes and we could never pay God back. But Jesus, being man and God, he's not a finite being like us, he's infinite. And his sacrifice was enough to cover what we owe. He paid paid the bill and now we're in the clear. And so because of that, our response is repentance. And that's next week's, Jesus moves next into the talking about repentance. We'll get into that next week. So I'm going to leave that there. Second, that middle one, understand the times in which you live. The death of Jesus, it renews us and it opens our, like the gospel story, right, is that he brings his people together and opens their eyes and brings us out of darkness and into light. And so we have as his people this wonderful gift of scripture, right? We have the book of Revelation. And even though people argue about how to interpret it and all this stuff, basically we, we have this complete revelation from God to tell us the times in which we live. And what is that time? We're living in that church age uh, where uh, the people of God defeat Babylon, right, through the power of the Holy But how do we do it? How do we win the war against Babylon? 
not by might, not by being stronger than Babylon, but by suffering and dying. And while we do that, we love the people around us. That's the example of Jesus. The consistent example of Jesus is love and service through pain and suffering. And so that's the kind of people we should be. Um, and as we understand the times in which we live, we look forward. This is one of the reasons that fourth view is the most attractive view, one of them, of interpreting the book of Revelation, is because in that view, the next thing on the calendar is Jesus comes back, right? We don't know when, right? Like the thief in the night or the master coming back from the wedding banquet. We don't know when he's coming back. Could be right now. Oh, that would have been cool, huh? Right? Uh, <laughs> We don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen, and it's the next thing on the calendar. And so we, we love and we serve the people around us as we suffer while we, with hope, look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And then go to that first one, right? That's right. Be ready. Oh, that's what I was talking about. Be ready for Jesus to come back. Um, here's the thing with this. Um, like I said, we don't know when. Oh, my notes broke. Oh, my notes just disappeared. All right, I'm just going to finish this. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But the thing is, he is at some point. So like I said, could be right now. I did it again. No. Oh, man. Okay. That might not. Could be a million years, but you're only going to live how long, right? Even you pull a Betty White and live to almost 100, that's still not very long in the grand scheme of eternity, right? So we got to live as if Jesus is coming back very soon. Um, I have, this is my fridge, okay? I've got all of um, my magnets. There's the girls. It's a lot of pictures of the girls, places I took the motorcycle to. All right, but if you zoom into the fridge, I have the greatest magnet of all time. <laughs> okay, I don't know if anybody's ever, nobody's ever mentioned it to me that this is on the fridge. Uh, okay, I bought that in a store, and I think they were trying to make fun of us, but it's actually very good advice. Jesus is coming, look busy. Now, here's the thing. Uh, this is how we'll end. I had some stuff in my notes, I think, but this is basically it. Uh, I've heard preachers say this. If Jesus was going to come back right now, how did you spend the last hour? You know, okay, well, that seems, all right, you know, I don't know. I was eating lunch, <laughs> right? Okay, so maybe that's not the best advice. But maybe let's think of it like this. Jesus is coming back right now. How did you spend the last, let's say, a week? Right, maybe think of it on a little bit of a wider. You can't, you know, we talk about our Pabst pathway a lot, which at the porch is what we do. Um, it's our, like, our pathway of missional living. Pray for people. Ask them about their lives. Pabst is that nasty hipster beer, by the way. Pray for people. Ask them about their lives. Bless them in ways nobody else would. Share your story with them, and then talk to them about the gospel. Right? This is what we do. Now, you can't be out there um, Pabst Blue Ribbon pathwaying all the time. Sometimes you got to eat lunch. Sometimes you got to take a bath. Sometimes you got to go to sleep. You know, but maybe a good check-in is, am I living, is the gospel story really hitting my life where I'm living with a kind of urgency where if Jesus did come back right now, I would be happy with how I spent the last week, two weeks, month, right? What are you doing in your life that makes you look like the faithful servant? How has the gospel so impacted your life? How is the fact that your debt has been paid? How is the fact that this story has been given to us and we know that Jesus is coming back, how is that actually impacting your life, right? We don't want to be um, the small little church where everybody just shows up and listens to 45, 50-minute sermons about whatever, and we get all this knowledge and we're super smart and we know everything, right? That's not the kind of church we want to be. We want to be the kind of church that have the urgency, like the Churchill urgency, screaming at Parliament because we know the times in which we live. 
right? And we, we have this, this real sense of like, this is the kingdom of God and this is how I'm going to love and serve the people around me, right? All right, let's pray.